My name is Josh. And this is Dharma Punks. And I'm grateful for your visiting us tonight. So uh, our next in-person gathering in New York will be September 12th. Uh, and that should be, hope any of you in stop by. It's at 7 at Grand Street Healing and Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And there'll be information up on the website, Dharma Punks NYC. And if you would like to uh, support my work, which is entirely funded by uh, donations only, I don't charge for anything I do. Um, the uh, PayPal button's on the podcast site. And the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X N Y C. The Patreon is on the website as well. So thank you for that. Tonight, talking about letting go process, grieving process of losses and disconnections. Uh, whether through death or through uh, as we become over time separated from the loved. As the Buddha said, uh, in life, no matter how we live it, there will be old age sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation. There will be not getting what we want, being separated from the loved and being stuck with people that we don't love so much. That's the first noble truth. Nothing we can do about it comes with the package of life itself. So we're going to talk about what complicates the grieving process or the letting go process. And then we'll have a meditation that will use some of the insights developed in a very interesting way. I'll tell a little bit about that story. And then we'll practice the meditation. And then we'll have time to share and talk about whatever questions or thoughts uh, you might have. So in the 1890s, three entirely disparate psychologists, William Wundt, uh, Carl Lang, and William James, all, and also Santiago, Cajal, all noted kind of independently, well, entirely independently, frankly, that to function efficiently, the brain relies on unconscious expectations about what will happen next. The brain is a expectation or prediction machine to uh, survive. It anticipates what it expects will be out there in the world around us, what we feel, see, hear, smell, what we'll perceive. And these predictions allow us to prepare our motor movements and our perceptual processes to react quickly enough to survive. And it also saves a lot of energy. So we don't in any situation actually perceive everything that's out there. We bring a whole host of expectations and 
only the data that most significantly disagree, the incoming sensory data that disagrees with these expectations is incorporated. And these underlying, excuse me, mental models of what our world is like um, uh, are extremely influential about our behaviors, our emotional states. These models are very difficult to uh, up to wholly reconstruct from scratch. Many of our mental models about what to expect from others, uh, whether we believe we're lovable or not, whether we feel we're safe in the world, whether we feel encouraged to disclose our internal states to others. These mental models may date all the way back to earliest childhood. So <clears throat> when um, someone dies or when a relationship abruptly ends or when people uh, move away or become unavailable, one hemisphere of the brain, the left, which represents the, wor the world and our experience in language and thought, this part of the brain can acknowledge conceptually that someone's no longer available, but the loss has not been experienced on a far more fundamental uh, subcortical and right hemispheric way. So the underlying models of the world don't change, and we continue to expect the figures to be there. Um, we go through, at first, what's called a state of denial. The circuits that hold the visual image of a person or an individual uh, become activated each time our underlying predictive models expects to see the individual. So if you saw that individual every Thanksgiving, even if they're no longer alive or they've moved to another country or you've broken up with them, your brain on Thanksgiving expecting to see that person will bring, will activate the circuits holding the image of that person. And those start to rise to our conscious thoughts. They'll begin to intrude on us. So all of these emotional expectations or these mental models of the world can activate unconsciously due to the time of the year, the time of day, the situation where we're in an expectation that someone will be there. And that will in turn signal a return to consciousness of the visual image of that person. Uh, that's what causes intrusive memories to arise out of the blue. Interestingly enough, the brain very often will try to protect itself against emotionally difficult memories by um, there's this process where the visual cortex will literally dim or block 
all these memories from returning to visual processing. Uh, there was a study by uh, Cambridge neuroscientists, Henson, and I can't remember the other name, but they showed that when people uh, were blocking memories, their visual cortex became less active. It's kind of cool that we can, without knowing it, block an entire lobe of the brain from functioning as a defense. But no matter how much we try to block these memories from returning, the visual memories will often bypass the filter and return to consciousness. And during these occasions, we feel the emotions associated with the loss. We start to feel sad, frustrated. If it's a person about whom we feel angry, we feel that. Or if it's a feeling of unease, we'll feel that affect. Over time, in normal grieving, or what is uh, the grieving that happens most of the time, the brain accumulates slowly enough experiences of absences to update emotionally our underlying expectations and models of what's available in the world. And so we no longer experience, after a long time, the gut punch, um, because now the underlying emotional models don't expect to see the person anymore. And instead, what we'll simply experience is a single emotion associated with the person who's no longer available to us. Um, it's very important to understand that the relationships that conclude and get eventually filed away easily uh, or filed away uh, slowly but surely as uh, lost um, are those where there's a dominant emotional state associated with the loss. Those are the easiest losses to mourn when there's a primary emotion, whether it's sadness or some remembering someone brings you joy or uh, when somebody brings you a sense of frustration. Um, whatever it is, if there's a single emotion, that's what allows the implicit circuits of your right temporal lobe in conjunction with your amygdala to file it away. Um, and it no longer becomes as hot or intrusive as it previously was. Now, at the turn of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud noted that some individuals don't go through the normal grieving process. The recognition of loss doesn't occur. Um, the brain doesn't adapt its underlying models of what's out there in the world. Um, our underlying models fail to accommodate the change and continually um, re, uh, the loss is continually activated intrusively. And the sense that somehow the, uh, the person and our feelings about them has been resolved uh, is never accomplished. And this is known as complicated grief. Um, 
So Freud again noted that what causes complicated grief is when there are um, it, the the underlying models don't get um, uh, filed away uh, or changed to expect loss. And I'll tell you why that happens in a moment. Uh, complicated grief, though, there's some clear indications of when individuals have trouble from recovering from loss and opening to new attachments. They generally become uh, subject to chronic depression, insomnia, weight loss, inability to concentrate. There's a loss of motivation and fatigue. Uh, tendencies to isolate, feeling we could have done more to prevent the loss from happening or the sense, a prevailing sense that we did something wrong, and repetition compulsion where we reenact the relationship but with other people. So, um, and very often, a complicated or incomplete letting go grieving process leads to, when the person is still alive, leads to people stalking or checking up on old exes via social media. Um, and sometimes out of the blue, they'll reach out to an old romantic partner or a friend, um, which only prevents the door emotionally from shutting. So it actually accomplishes the exact opposite of what the person yearns for, which is to resolve the loss. But by constantly looking uh, on Facebook, Instagram, gossip, uh, keeping tabs on somebody, what they're doing is actually reactivating the expectations of reconnection. So. Freud noted that the mourning process becomes incomplete or complicated if our relationship with the lost person was marred by conflictual feelings. When there's really starkly contrasting feelings about the lost person, then it prevents both the underlying model of the world to be updated, as well as it prevents the memories to be filed away implicitly. Memories are filed away implicitly by emotional associations when implicitly means they're unconscious. They're not memories we generally um, have to recite or bring to mind all the time. So they're stored for long-term uh, in the right temporal lobe, left temporal lobe, but they're uh, sorted not just by uh, hippocampus, but also largely by the amygdala. So they have emotional associations. Relationships, though, that are unresolved, where there's lots of conflict, don't get filed away. And here's a couple of examples. Relationships where the survivor of those left behind never got to express important feelings. So they, they like, for instance, if 
a mother or a father was emotionally volatile or uh, borderline and their loved ones over time uh, never got to express their anger out of fear of what might happen or express their disappointment or express their wish that uh, the parent had been more kind and patient with them. Then when the parent eventually dies, very often the people who survived them have complicated grieving because there's all these feelings that they never got to express that complicate the process that while they had some love and care and concern for the parent, they also had these unexpressed feelings of disappointment or frustration that the parent was punitive or volatile or whatever. So important feelings that contradict uh, the the main emotion are suppressed. Um, sometimes, on the other hand, a person really felt nothing but conscious anger to the figure, but unconsciously there was a desire to be understood and cared for, and they never expressed that underlying desire to be cared for, um, or sometimes... Uh, they never had the time to ask difficult questions about the parents' life to unearth, you know, uh, things about their past that would explain their behavior. Sometimes, um, uh, especially when when individual when people lose uh, important figures through suicide, very often that leaves in its way complicated grieving because. We don't understand what was going on at the very end, and that not knowing creates a complication. The main emotion at first, before the suicide, might be one of concern or uh, um, it could be any emotion, but now it's got the secondary complication of I don't know what was really going through their mind or what happened at the very end. So in addition to not being filed away, when uh, losses are complicated by contradictory emotions, there's an injury to our ego. The loss feels like a rejection and it creates uh, a, a significant amount of guilt and shame that people did something wrong. So uh, what to do? about this? Well, first I should note that the Buddha uh, actually treated a case of complicated grief with uh, Kisa Gotami, famous Buddhist teaching where she had uh, was a woman who had a child that she um, pretty much devoted her in li her entire life to. She was very poor, so all of the money she made went to the child's um, clothing and welfare, and then the child got bit by a snake and died, and the woman was incapable of resolving the grief. She literally carried around the body of her child with her, 
And when she was instructed to meet with the Buddha, uh, he uh, kindly suggested that he would look after the body and that her job was to go and uh, meet with people in the uh, area where they were. And uh, I, I don't want to go into the whole set of instructions he got, he gave her, but it, the essence was she was instructed to talk with all of the people in different houses. So she would eventually realize that there was nothing personal about loss, that loss happens in every household to every individual and that uh, there was nothing for her to feel guilt about. And that eventually the dominant affect she wound up having was one of both essentially sadness, but it was no longer complicated. And when she returned to the Buddha, she took up robes, became a nun and spent her life uh, counseling other people who needed help. So that's a very early example of one approach. And you can look up Kisakatami and read about uh, the story with the mustard seeds. Um, more recent treatments for complicated grief. In 1980, um, two psychologists whose names I cannot for the life of me remember came up with grief resolution therapy. And um, they noted a process of where therapists would use guided imagery to help the individual revisit the loss in the present and unearth the unresolved emotions that they felt towards the lost figure. And so that was a very basic process. And I don't have any information about how successful the treatment was, but it certainly laid the groundwork for about 10 years later in 1990 in a rather obscure Australian journal of, of clinical hypnosis. There was a new process of managing unresolved grief by a guy named Manthrope, and uh, I think that was his name. And the process um, was apparently extremely successful. I believe they did it with over 60 people, and they found a huge success rate where very often people noted remarkable improvements in as little as two sessions with the, the hypnotherapist. And so he published a paper. And um, the process goes a little bit like this. To resolve grief, one would bring to mind images of the figure that was no longer available, either through uh, a breakup or a death or somebody moving away or a friendship that got broken up. And the individual would bring to mind as vividly as possible the person that was no longer available. And then the mourner would have an imaginary dialogue with this 
visualized figure in their mind about their relationship and they would disclose all the unexpressed emotions and thoughts to the other and then they would even imagine what the lost person would how they might respond and finally at the end one would say goodbye to this lost figure this no longer available person and very often in the sessions while under hypnosis the person would be holding the hand of the therapist and the therapist would conclude by um as they as the person said goodbye they would slowly let go, let go of the therapist's hands and then the therapist would conclude by emphasizing all the positive memories of the lost figure so that a single dominant affect could be restored and the person would feel resolved because now they had finally gotten to speak all of the undisclosed emotions that they felt about figures from their past so this was in a very obscure journal of hypnosis and about 20 years after that into uh, probably around 2010 i'm not sure but the harvard psychologist and buddhist daniel p brown read the journal and became fascinated by this protocol um and started using it in traditional buddhist therapy as a simple visualization process and you didn't have to do it under any kind of formal hypnosis and they found astonishing success with it as well so in our meditation tonight we're first going to uh just practice soothing ourselves into a relaxed state and then if you want to stay in a very basic concentration or mindfulness practice you can but uh for the second half of the meditation i'm going to lead this resolution practice so you can try it out for yourself and see if you think it's of any value to help resolve uh unresolved relationships from the past so thanks for listening and now what you're invited to do is to find a really um comfortable uh position and you're encouraged if you like to turn off your video monitor or or switch the camera or sit somewhere off screen so you don't have to be filmed while you're uh meditating uh you can if you want i only am filmed because i'm the the teacher so <laughs> i kind of have to be but if i was just practicing i probably would uh switch off my video feed for just the uh, meditation and um so closing our eyes and bringing our attention to 
if you like the sensations of your your body breathing in and out, and just find the sensations where this ongoing process of inhalation and exhalation are most apparent. And for me, at first, years and years and years ago, decades ago, I would use the tip of my nose, but I didn't find that to be especially relaxing. And over the years, it then moved to my chest. But now pretty much I go to just this feeling between the abdomen or the sensations between the abdomen and the upper chest, I guess maybe the sternum or, um, and I just feel the energy moving up from my abdomen to my chest as I breathe in. And then I, I also feel like some expansion first in the belly and then in the rib cage. And then I feel this release and dropping of energy in my torso associated with the outbreath. So if that's at all uh, useful, you can, of course, focus there. But really, the encouragement is to find the breath anywhere it feels most uh, easiest to discern. And there's some people who feel constrained by landing on the sensations of breathing. If you prefer, you can simply find a very relaxing set of sensations in your body, maybe behind your eyes. palms of your hands, your forehead, and just reside there, trying to spread the ease and comfort through your body. Or if you prefer to more, prefer a more spacious awareness, just sit comfortably and listen to the sounds in the world around you arriving and receding from consciousness. Don't visualize what's causing or creating any sound. Try to keep your awareness as open as possible so you hear sounds that are close by as well as distant and you don't linger on any sound and if you're sticking with the breath just you can count the in-breath one and then the out-breath think two on the next in-breath, think three. So you're counting up to 
an in-breath labeled five, and then you start counting back down again, four on the next out-breath, three on the next in, two on the next exhalation. So you're counting up from one to five and back down with odd numbers on the inhalations. And finally, another relaxing, soothing practice is to visualize people in your life you feel grateful for. People you care about. Figures in the world you admire. And then as you hold their image in mind, just think, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of stress and suffering. Happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. So we're just going to practice for a while. And... uh, Just try to settle. If you notice your mind contracting around a thought and you drift away from your practice, just note what the thought was and then find in your body the muscles that got tense. Whenever we contract around thought, there's a physiological contraction, sometimes in the belly, sometimes in the throat or the chest or the forehead. The body tenses defensively as we disconnect. And ruminate. And so if you find the tension in the body that accompanies getting lost in thought and you relax that muscle group, whether it's in your stomach or chest, etc., and just pay attention to keeping that area relaxed, it becomes easier to stay present. Don't add any self-criticism if your mind wanders away constantly, so long as you catch it and bring it back. You're developing awareness. You're finding a way out of suffering.
So if you'd like to try the reconciliation practice, bring to mind someone you're no longer connected with. This could be a figure that's no longer alive or a figure that is alive, but through circumstances is no longer available to you. And yet in some way there's a sense or feeling of unfinished business. And try in your mind's eye to visualize them as vividly as you can. They're right in front of you, though not too close. Try to be as specific as you can. What would they be wearing? Which place would this interaction occur? It doesn't have to be a real place that you knew this person from. It could be a place where you feel safer in this practice. If you like, you can make them smaller, less imposing. Try to bring it to mind clearly. But if you can't visualize people, then just see if you could imagine their presence being somewhere nearby. You don't have to use visual imagination, just sense what it would be like if they were nearby. And see if you can bring to mind what was this connection like? What were the, especially what did you feel? What different feelings were there during this relationship or the interactions with this person? So as you sense their presence or visualize them, see if in your body you can feel or some emotional state. Or perhaps there's just an obvious question, why did you? That comes to mind. Generally, it'll be about the way they left, why the relationship ended, why someone acted the way they did that caught you off guard. See if you can understand what feels most emotionally unfinished 
what was never said or spoken. And if it's possible, their presence is now so vivid that you can really sense what it would be like. And at this point, if you're alone, you can say aloud, or if you prefer in your thoughts, whatever it is that you never got to express. Perhaps it's a feeling about the relationship or a question about why they behaved in a certain way. And as you, in your mind or aloud, speak this question or this, express this feeling, just see if you can visualize them understanding what you're saying. Really put some effort in to be vulnerable. This is a chance to express safely feelings or questions you never got to disclose that you've been carrying around as a burden. What is it you wish you felt safe enough to say and say it as simply as possible what feels most unfinished. If you like, and you know the person really well, and can sense how they would respond at their most open and vulnerable, what would they say in response? Not out of anger or defensiveness, but when they were most vulnerable, 
and open, how would they respond? allow them allow them to address what you most need to hear the feelings you never got to express allow them to hear it and respond And if there's something more you need to say, give voice to that as well. And continue with this process until you feel even the slightest shift and something internally feels more settled. Less complex. Perhaps in your body, something will feel settled. Now it's time to take leave. Find a way of saying goodbye for the time being. So that you can go your separate ways. so that you can have acknowledged these feelings and then return back to what is present. And you can always do this process or practice again 
So we need not hesitate about letting the memories go now. And whenever you're ready, you can bring your awareness back to the visual field around you, slowly opening your eyes and taking in the room, nice breath out. (laughs) 